0: Good evening uh, and welcome. Uh, Thank you all for coming on a rather nasty night. Uh, I trust you will be rewarded. My name is David Ryden. Uh, I'm the chair of the political science department at Hope College. Uh, It's my distinct pleasure and privilege uh, to begin the program with a a few words. Um, First, let me uh, welcome the main voices who will be on stage this evening for what should be an interesting and edifying conversation. Catherine Lopez of the National Review Institute Reverend Father Sirico, Robert Sirico of the Acton Institute, John O'Sullivan of the National Review, and Dr. Jeffrey Pellett of the Hope College Political Science Department. Uh, On behalf of the Hope College Political Science Department and the entire Hope campus, uh, I wish to welcome uh, to Hope the Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal and Kirk on campus. Uh, October 19th of this year was the 100th anniversary of the birth of Russell Kirk. Uh, and we are thrilled through this evening's conversation to be a part of the honoring of the birthday of this seminal thinker uh, and writer. Uh, I want to especially note the presence of Mrs. Kirk Uh, The co-founder and the president of the Kirk Center, uh, Annette, we uh, extend you the warmest welcome uh, and we trust this will be a gratifying uh, evening for you. Uh, Likewise, I want to especially acknowledge Dr. Jeff Nelson, uh, the other co-founder and the vice chairman of the Kirk Center. Uh, Jeff has been absolutely instrumental in his leadership at the Kirk Center uh, in building the Hope College-Kirk Center relationship. Uh, And in the planning and the execution of this event tonight. So thank you, Jeff, for your diligence and good work. Uh, The other person doing the heavy lifting uh, leading up to tonight is my departmental colleague, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Pellett. And I am just so appreciative of Jeff's vision uh, and the labor that he has invested uh, in uh, cultivating this relationship with Kirk Center for the benefit of our students uh, and our campus and our community. So thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, this is the second large-scale event uh, with Kirk on campus after a hugely successful inaugural panel discussion last year. Uh, for the past four years or so, about a group of 20 Hope students have traveled to Macosta, Michigan with Dr. Pallette to spend a fall weekend at the Kirk Center. Uh, These times have been nothing short of transformative for our students. Uh, We are grateful for the hospitality that the Kirk Center has extended them, and we are eager to find new ways to tap into the Kirk Center. Uh, and the unique opportunities for deep intellectual growth that the Kirk Center encourages for our students. Uh, There are many who've had a hand in this evening's program and I need to make note of that. Uh, Thanks to Dr. Sarah Estelle of the Hope Economics Department and her Markets and Morality Group for their sponsorship. Uh, Thank you to the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids and the National Review Institute for their support and sponsorship. Uh, I need to recognize Dr. Gleaves Whitney, who's the director of the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. Uh, We are fortunate indeed to have a center of that caliber in our backyard. Uh, There are many others who uh, are deserving of explicit uh, thanks, uh, but in this interest of time, I will offer a collective but a heartfelt uh, thank you to all who have had a part uh, in preparing for this evening. Uh, The topic of the night is populism uh, and the challenge it presents for contemporary conservatism. And we are indeed in the midst of a populist moment and it has been manifested in a strong backlash against economic, cultural, and political elitism. It was evident in the surprisingly strong presidential run of Bernie Sanders uh, and the growing strength on the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, It was responsible in no small part for carrying Donald Trump into the White House. Uh, We've witnessed with clarity the ugly side of populism. Uh, The rhetorical demagoguery, the nativist impulses, the stoking of racial resentment, uh, and the attacks on a variety of our institutions. Uh, Can a healthier populism be salvaged from this? And is there room for, if not a fusion, at least some modicum of peaceful coexistence between populist and conservative impulses, uh, particularly when we consider the need for sound and wise political leadership? These are just a few of the many challenges and questions that the populist movement raises for conservatism and for our politics more generally, and upon which our panel tonight will shed some light. Catherine Lopez will serve as the moderator this evening. Uh, I will say a few words to introduce Catherine, and then uh, she will introduce the, the panelist. Uh, Catherine Jean Lopez is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and an editor-at-large of National Review. She's an award-winning journalist and commentator. She's widely published and a frequently heard voice in print, online, and on the airwaves at such outlets as The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, First Things, CNN, NPR, Vatican Radio, and countless other outlets. She's made appearances on college campuses too numerous uh, to count. Uh, She's someone of uncommon insight and wisdom on matters dealing with faith in public life, uh, the dignity of human life, feminism, and much more. Uh, she's the perfect person to moderate this evening's discussion. So please join me in welcoming Catherine Lopez and tonight's panelists.
1: Good evening. I am... Um gather it's a holy day in parts of Michigan today, the opening of deer season, so in addition to the weather, which I'm from New York, so people get scared, um, not, as, not as bad as in Washington. There was some snow in Washington and everything shut down, um, so I know you're all much more resilient, um, but all, all the same, I know you have a lot of competition for your time, so thank you for being here tonight. I just want to briefly introduce, uh, tell you a little bit more about our panelists. Um, John O'Sullivan actually is the reason I I ever wrote for National Review because I I answered the phones in the Washington office of National Review, and one day he said, "Catherine, why don't you write something on the Violence Against Women's Act?" and and so I did, and and the rest is history, as they say. So thank you, John. Um, Or or maybe you have to apologize to some people. (laughs) Do. Um, He is currently the president of the Danube Institute in Budapest, but as you can guess, he's had many other jobs, including being editor of National Review. He's still senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and he's been associate editor of the London Times and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and a special advisor to Margaret Thatcher. He has many stories about many people to tell. And he's author of a book that if you haven't read, you should read. It's a magisterial, the president... The Pope and the Prime Minister, three who changed the world, um, among other things. Right about now, when uh, there's a little bit of a feeling of crisis of leadership, it's a uh, it's a a good a good book uh, to read. Uh, Jeffrey Pollitt, as some of you know, are, is is uh, a professor of political science here at um, Hope College, which I I've been joking on Twitter and and elsewhere that I was very concerned. I would say it was. Faith or love, college. I would get one of the virtues wrong, or um, mercy even too. So I, I think I just named the right college. Um, for, uh, forgive me if I didn't. Um, we we actually have a little bit of a theme that that Jeffrey starts. Uh, I went to Catholic University. You went. You got a graduate degree at Catholic University, and so did Father Sirico. So Catholic University gets a little shout-out. And we love John O'Sullivan, too, despite his (laughs) no We have to give you an honorary degree, and then you do a a, a panel again. Um, Author of Sanctioning Religion, Question Mark, Politics, Law, and Faith-Based Public Service. Also the co-author of Church and State Documents. Decoded, and editor at Front Porch Republic. And a wise man, um, I learned, um, because he stays off of social media, I learned earlier today. So um, maybe maybe that's a model some of us should follow, and also a native of, of Holland, Michigan. Um, Father Robert Sirico, um, co-founder and president of the, the Acton Institute, a citizen, I learned today, of the U- U.S. and Italy, um, because of family, uh, a, a family uh, uh, it was given to you uh, by virtue of your birth, pastor of... Uh, Sacred Heart in uh, Parish Catholic Church, um, you may have noticed from the caller, um, uh, in Grand Rapids, and author among other things of defending the free market, the moral case for a free economy. He's also occasionally a chaplain on the National Review cruises, so it's a very important job. Um, We have very difficult jobs. Um, (laughs) That's a joke. Um, I just wanted to super quickly, I I was was rereading, this is actually the copy of Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind um, that I believe I ordered from the Conservative Book Club back in the day in an ad from a national Review um, when I was a high school student or like a 7th grader or something, which tells you about my childhood. But I I was was flipping through it earlier this week, and and uh, the end of his introduction, I thought, was a a, a little... I I don't know how how much uh, about Russell Kirk everybody in the room knows, um, but but a little bit of an explanation maybe of why we're having this panel tonight. Um, uh, And and so uh, it reads, In a revolutionary epoch, sometimes men taste every novelty sicken of all of them, and return to ancient principles so long disused that they seem refreshingly hardy when they are rediscovered. History often appears to resemble a roulette wheel. There is truth in the old Greek idea of cycles, and round again may come the number which signifies a conservative order. He goes on a little later, the true conservative thinks of this process, which looks like chance or fate, as rather the providential operation of a moral law of polarity. And then he says a little bit later on, if a conservative order is indeed to return, we ought to know the tradition which is attached to it so that we we may rebuild society. If it is not to be restored, still we ought to understand conservative ideas so that we may rake from the ashes what scorched fragments of civilization, escape the conflagration of unchecked will and appetite." gives you a little sense of Russell Kirk and I think probably some of the thoughts we're we're having in the world today. Um, I just wanted, we'll we'll talk about populism, we'll we'll talk about Kirk, we'll talk about current politics, we'll talk about some history. I wanted to start because Father Sirico and and John both knew Russell Kirk, um, and so um, some stories. Father, do you want to start? Some Russell Kirk stories.
2: Yes, this may start off like one of his ghost stories, but it isn't. Uh, it was a night, not unlike this one, in fact, uh, quite a bit more snow, as I recall, in January of 1994, that Russell came uh, to speak at the Acton Institute. Uh, we held the uh, event at the Downtown University Club, which has floor-to-ceiling windows, so you can <coughs> see the snow coming down, and, and Russell addressed the topic of... Acton, Lord Acton on Revolution. Now, what an independent-minded person he was in that he came and addressed the question and criticized Lord Acton at the Acton Institute,
1: <laughs> siding against Lord Acton
2: with Edmund Burke. And you,
1: you, you remind me, right before he died, Justice Scalia was at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington and decided to take on Thomas Aquinas. Yes, I heard a him. very similar kind of thing.
2: Well... Justice Scalia knows better now. I don't know. Perhaps, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps Russell and Lord Acton are having interesting conversations with Edmund Burke. <laughs> uh, but it was it was a scintillating evening. I remember that Annette was there, Jeff was there, uh, and uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Monica. Monica is the the Kirk's oldest daughter, and she worked at the Acton Institute. She was our receptionist for oh. for a number of years. And uh, I just remember sitting there thinking, here he is giving this whole erudite uh, conservative defense against Acton, of course, who is a classical liberal, uh, in the most gentlemanly uh, and erudite manner that you didn't dare want to tackle him. But I haven't gotten to the end of the tape to uh, hear the questions and answers. I, I was listening and it's available on, on the website, so you can go there and hear Russell Kirk, it ended up being his last uh, public lecture. At the beginning of it, I noticed that it's not in the, um, the printed version of the lecture, but he, he alludes to having been on an exhausting uh, speaking tour, uh, and that his doctor had confined him to bed for six weeks, and uh, that he came out for this in that weather, down from Macosta. Uh, to give that lecture. So that's one of the uh, uh, the encounters that, that I had with the sage of Macosta. Of course, I had heard about him and read him in National Review for years and his works, but to have met him in the flesh, uh, dined at Piety Hill, and uh, I'll tell more stories as the evening goes on if the opportunity presents itself.
1: John?
3: Um, I don't have a lot of stories of a personal kind about... Um, Russell, because I knew him through his books and his writings um, long before I I met him, and um, but uh, there is, one of the topics of this evening is populism, and when I saw that I thought to myself what about Russell's relationship with populism Um, because he wasn't of course a populist, Uh, he was a literary intellectual and historian, and But of course, you know, obviously, populism must have come up occasionally. And then I remembered the one case in which it did. You may recall that one of the eruptions of populism that occurred in the 50s was the John Birch Society, the leader of which at one point accused um, President Eisenhower of being a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. And Russell was asked about this, and he said, the President of the United States is not a communist he is a golfer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in a way, that tells you a lot about Russell because it's a very funny remark. Uh, it's a kind of a dismissive remark. Um, but it's also grounded in a kind of common sense. I mean, obviously, it's hard to imagine. I'm sure such people have existed, but not very often. It's hard to imagine a devoted communist golfer doesn't seem to fit in <laughs> to a pattern of imagination and attitudes. Um, there's something uh, really out of kilter there. Um, but I think that was Russell all over. Um, that's, uh, he, he didn't... he, he disliked ideology. Um, he believed in principles, he believed in belief, he believed in religion, but he thought that when you took any one of these valuable things... And you turned it into a system of ideas that was designed to achieve certain political objects. It became not simply coarsened, uh, but it became um, a kind of a foolish, misleading, and possibly, and eventually possibly cruel, um, um, uh, um, uh, what I want here, element in thought. And, um, and, and so what you get in Russell is far more the man who writes ghost stories, Um, the man who has a reverence for uh, the University of St. Andrews where he spent some time the man whose life is devoted very much to friendship I think it was Newman who said that Toryism is about friends at one point. And certainly, um, as I've gone through life, I've noticed that a lot of people uh, in the evening of their lives, and this wasn't true for Russell, of course, in the evening of their lives will say to you, you know, of all the relationships that one has in life, excluding perhaps the relationship between parents and children, but friendship is the one that is the one most easy to sustain and the one that is least troubled as you go through life by eruptions of passion, anger, and discord. And I think that um, Russell is an example. I mean, he could argue all right, and he said things which sometimes offended people. But there's a balance and reasonableness and a mis- sense of mischief in his personality and in his writings, which uh, are important and which separate him from the, the, the humorless fanatic, uh, who is one of the great burdens we all have to bear.
1: JEFFREY as someone who grew up here, and um, what was your impression of Kirk and what impact did he had on your life as a teacher, primarily, but otherwise?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I never got to meet him. Um, he uh, he was alive when I was a college student, but uh, the opportunity never presented him. To my knowledge, he was never on campus during my time at an unnamed college to the east of here. Um, and and uh, I didn't come to his work until I got to graduate school. Uh, the first book of his that I read was The Roots of American Order, Um, And it's been in the last 15 years. I I moved back to Michigan 15 years ago, and that's when I developed a real appreciation for his work. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Kirk is um, that he's probably a guy who could have gone anywhere. Uh, I mean, he has an international reputation, uh, the author of 31 books. Uh, He probably could have gotten an academic appointment if he wanted one. Uh, He didn't want one for understandable reasons. Um, and he loved Michigan. Uh, he uh, resided in the family home in Macosta. So one of the things that appealed to me about Kirk's work was how grounded it was, what he would call the permanent things, uh, but how grounded it was in the stuff that's really essential to human experience. Right? He wasn't going to leave his home. Right? Home mattered to him. So he asked how it affects my teaching and so forth. One of the things I like to say to my students is, you know, don't fall into this trap of thinking that a college education means you have to end up in New York City. No offense, I know you're from New York sure. uh, or, or Brooklyn. But I'm really yeah.
1: from New York, <laughs> yeah. so it's home. But you're from New York, <laughs> yeah. oh, right?
4: Uh, or I they, won't
1: call you a traitor.
2: <laughs> no,
4: I'm a refugee. <laughs>
1: okay, They Fair let enough. me
4: in, and I stayed. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> Fair enough.
4: Or that you have to go to Washington D.C. or Silicon Valley or something like that. Uh, you know that the, the the place that you came from is a good and honorable and decent place. I take students up to Macosta every year, and it's a town of you know four hundred some odd people. Um, you know, you're when you drive through there, you kind of think, oh, is there going to be something interesting here? And it turns out, yeah, there's something very interesting there. That for generations people have uh, built a life there, and that that kind of uh, disposition is very much in Kirk's work, right? That you're not just constantly uh, avaricious, you're not constantly reaching for the uh, brass ring, you're not driven by these kind of worldly measures of success, uh, you're driven by, you know, he would constantly talk about labor, piety, and fate, you know, which comes from Virgil, uh, right? that these are the three elements of human life. Uh, and, th- and I think that kind of defined... His work, labor, piety, and face—fate, face, fate—you face, fate. Uh, know, devotion to your ancestors, uh, honoring them properly, uh, working hard. I mean, the guy produced an enormous amount over the course of his life, um, and accepting the life that's been given to you without thinking that there's always going to be something better on the horizon.
1: Something that um, at least two of you have touched on already. Um, that I think is just so important and why we need to review the life of Russell Kirk and and the founder of National Review, Bill Buckley, who who many of us knew very well, um, is because these are examples of men who saw life as more than politics. And and um, I often say that I, I, I'm observing all the time. My Uber drivers are talking to me about politics, they're telling me who the president met with this morning. I went through high school, college, watching C-SPAN all the time, wanting to know why more people weren't paying attention to this, right? It's really important. Now that everyone's paying attention to it like it's a reality TV show, I want them to go get a hobby, you know? but in all seriousness, as, you, as John, you were talking about friendship and, mm-hmm. and all of these things, the conservative imagination, that that idea. Yeah. Um, when I talk to young people, they often ask me, so if you go into journalism, should you get a journalism degree? And, um, or if I want to go to Washington, should I get a, a politics degree? No, actually get a literature degree or a history yeah. degree or learn something about the world. And if I talk to like young conservatives, Go think about something other than politics. You don't have to work at National Review. You don't have to be an activist. You can write ghost stories. You can um, contribute to culture. This this is all really important stuff. Um, you alluded that you had more Russell Kirk thoughts and stories, Father. Um, how how can he just be a, an example to us about how we should get outside of this, you know, frenzy that everyone whatever. Donald Trump just tweeted. We all have to pay attention to.
2: Uh, well, I mean, uh, to look at his life, uh, to look at the way he lived it, and and its texture and its its variety uh, and its wit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's just something. Um, I don't know if the word is mischievous, but certainly creative and beautifully traditional about the fact. And I don't know if this has been written about. We can ask. Annette, if it's not been written about, somebody needs to write about it. But, you know, in the back of the house at Piety Hill, there is Sherwood Forest. Uh, And he he made that allusion one day over Sherry's in the the library. And I said, how is that? He said, well, I brought back seedlings (laughs) from Sherwood Forest, and we planted them. And the whole of the... uh, Backyard, that, that section, I suppose it was maybe another house that had been there at some point, uh, was so that he could walk through his, walk through England, walk through his ancestral heritage. And I mean, that, that has to be, there has to be something more beautiful and attractive about that than the latest tweet from Ann Coulter. You T- know, TSA didn't confiscate the seedlings? I'm, I'm sure <laughs> maybe that was a tradition he broke. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and I, that smuggled him in. could you imagine
1: the TSAs and yeah. trying to <laughs> figure what out what this, this
3: was? <laughs> but, but the point you raise, I mean, there's more to life than, than, than um, politics, as you said. And indeed, there's more to conservatism than politics. I mean, that's why, for example, so many conservatives are terribly discontented all the time, as I am at the moment, with a conservative party. Um, I'm thinking about Brexit, obviously. Now, um, the the, the relationship is an interesting one, because conservatism is, on the one hand, a disposition. It's a disposition to preserve, and it applies to um, all the other things in life, uh, rather than politics. The Conservative Party, which is attempting to be conservative, to preserve, will will have to manoeuvre. It will have to concede it will never be able to proclaim a conservative vision and realize it. The ideas of people sometimes say they're carrying out a conservative revolution. That, in my view, is is ridiculous because uh, if you actually look at what politicians do and how statesmen behave, I'm not attacking people, they're not able to go about realizing visions. They have to to try to reconcile competing factions and, and so on. Now, as a matter of fact, A distinguished contemporary of Russell's did tackle this question um, in a way that I think he meant to be somewhat critical of Russell and the new conservatives and that was Samuel Huntington now famous of course as the prophet of the class of civilizations but he wrote an essay in 1956 on what he called an ideological definition of conservatism I think a very misleading title but he said um, what was it? If you look at conservatism in politics, what is it um, that, uh, in, that you could say that this is the case, whatever you're at it, a socialist could agree with a liberal, with a conservative, that this was what conservatism was? And he said conservatism is the um, set of ideas that men and women turn to when the fundamental institutions of their society are under attack. Um, they may be liberals, uh, but, the, but w- when the, uh, liberal institutions are under attack, they, they will find it hard to defend the institution in liberal terms. This, of course, was proved when the universities came under attack in the 60s, because they can always say, look, you say you believe all these highfalutin things, but you don't actually live up to that every day. And it is then... That uh, people who are not necessarily conservatives will turn to conservatism to defend those institutions. It's the set of ideas which uh, people adopt when they're defending their society and its institutions against revolutionary attack. And as a matter of fact, Huntingdon didn't think that Russell and the new conservatives were doing that. He said they're very, these are very good ideas. But fundament- but but there isn't the the society is not under this fundamental attack. But that will happen, and of course it did happen in the sixties. And when it happened, we had the birth of the neoconservatives, who were people who hadn't been conservatives but wanted to defend the universities or liberal ideas against the radical attack that the 68 eighters came up with. And I and um, so I think that uh, that what what um, Huntington saw and I think was right, was that Russell's ideas were fundamentally right and sound, but that people wouldn't rally to them um, um, when they were living comfortable, placid lives, and there was no great ideological rift in the society. But when that happened, they would turn and see to what Russell had said, and, and what other conservatives had said, and, and, um, and indeed that's what happened. I mean, Bill Buckley's National Review became the home at that point for a lot of Uh, disillusioned or liberals under attack.
4: Yeah, if, um, you know, one definition of a conservative is that a conservative is somebody who believes that things can always be worse. (laughs) Uh, But another way to think about that would be a conservative is a person who knows that things have been worse. Mm -hmm. And if you look at American history, we have had worse crises than the one that we're experiencing right now. I mean, populism has been a constant in American history. So when you're uh, posing your question, I was thinking about the um, debate that was taking place around the constitutional period. So this is a very unsettled, contentious period in American history. Are we going to jettison the Articles of Confederation? Are we not? I mean, they're arguing about what the form of government is going to be. That's a pretty fundamental uh, debate taking place. Um, you can find in the writings of both Federalists and Anti-Federalists, uh, a couplet by Alexander Pope, I, I, I think it's in Federalist 70 that Hamilton uses it, but it's also in some of the Anti-Federalists uh, papers, uh, how small of all that human hearts endure, the parts that laws or kings can cause or cure. Right? So, I mean, here they're engaged in a debate about what the system of government is going to be. And at the same time, there's this sort of humility about it. Right? Yeah, we're doing politics, and this is important, and these debates are important, but how small of all that human hearts endure, the part that laws or kings can cause or cure. Uh, you know, I mean, human life has an expanse that's far beyond uh, what's, what's going on in politics. What our politics can't bear is a set of expectations where it becomes the generator of all meaning, Uh, where it becomes, uh, where where it has the burden of all human purposefulness. Uh, When our politics takes on that kind of burden, it gets out of whack really quickly. Um, And and that's when things go bad. So, you you know, part of it, I I think what Kirk understood was the sort of disposition of humility, right? And and, and that is just a, a recognition of the proper role that politics ought to play in our lives, um, and then, uh, you know, you mentioned friendship, but you know there, in, in his uh, book, Prospects for Conservatives, there's this wonderful sort of meditation he has on the role of, of love in human life. And he goes, this is, this is really what conservatism is all about. He says it's not about worldly success. You know, it's not about collecting money. It's not about all these things. It's about loving. Um, and, and, and again, loving the life that you've been given and, and embracing that and, and then doing your duty toward and fulfilling your obligations toward others.
1: Yes. Yeah. When you teach Kirk, um, does he seem to resonate? Does he seem to feed a hunger in students? Uh, I
4: think so. I mean, you can ask them. There's a bunch of them here tonight. By the way, I want to congratulate you on wearing an orange and blue scarf. I mean, I think that's really good taste on your part. I,
1: I, I do my research, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah.
4: Um, I actually
1: had no idea. <laughs>
4: uh, you know, I, 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 you, could, you could ask them. I, we're not going to invite them up here right now, but um, I, I think it does. Um, You know, I I remember a number of years ago, I had a young woman in my class who was from Nebraska, a small town in Nebraska. And, uh, you know, we were sort of talking about these sorts of things. And she loved her town in Nebraska. And she said, are you telling me that when I graduate, I can move back to Nebraska? I said, yes, you can. And she goes, and I won't be considered a loser? (laughs) And, And I thought, well, isn't that interesting, right? I mean, all these cultural cues that she's getting, is you know that the the, the the way up is the way out. You know that kid's going places, which means they're not staying here,
1: yeah.
4: right? And whenever people try to ascend from something, what they're doing is they're saying that the thing they are ascending from is not worthy of their attention, not worthy of their energies. Um, and and I think that uh, you know part of the problem is we've created places that really aren't worth caring about. Um, and so, part of uh, our task is to create places that are worth caring about. Uh, and if you can do that in Macosta, Michigan, you can do that anywhere. Yeah.
3: <laughs> can we just go, can I just pick up this love theme? Because I agree with with, with you, uh, but I think that again, this is something which we tend to appreciate when we see it denied or attacked. Um, I mean, as with so many things, I, I notice this in relation to the fact that. The, all the ideas and extreme feminism among them uh, which de- derive from cultural marxism uh, essentially say that all human relationships are about power and and consequently getting establishing defending power uh, is something you should do if it's yourself or if you're a, one of the oppressed classes it's something you must overturn destroy now i remember seeing the, the time when i first saw the fallacy here really um, there was a, uh, Ellen Goodman, the feminist c- columnist, wrote a, an article called The Perfect Husband. And she said that she was talking to a woman who had a perfect husband, who was always doing the right things, um, was always doing the washing up, or he, however you define the right things, he was always doing it. And she felt grateful. And Ellen Goodman's argument was she shouldn't feel grateful. She shouldn't feel grateful because he should be doing any of these things. So what was there to be grateful about? Well, there's the general point, of course, that we should all be doing good things all the time, but we do so so rarely that I think we should be grateful to mm-hmm. anyone who does. Yes, yeah. and, and, uh, but even forgetting the, that kind of narrow point fact is, we, we should be grateful anyway, even for the failed efforts mm. to be helpful and good. And we shouldn't be thinking about our relationship with other people as being that, that of, based on power and struggle and, and so on. We should, and, and indeed, when I think of the relationship between mothers and sons, for example, that's a relationship in which all the formal power is on one side, but all the actual power is on the other. Think of how many mothers are uh, desperate to get their sons to ring them up regularly or send them letters or come round and see them. So I think that kind of whole argument is nonsense. But, the, in, in, but it's, an, it's now embedded in our rules and laws, regulations, and, and, the, and the idea that, in a sense, we're all in this together. We should all try to love one another, and, and um, we should regard the, the questions of power uh, as something that, that's, that there is, an, ele- there is an, an arena of life where power contestation is unavoidable that 's absolutely clear, but we don 't want to spread that arena to cover the whole of life, and we certainly don 't want it to replace the family because then of course, a family based entirely as a set of power relationships won 't be a family at all and I think obviously that Russell not only knew that not only wrote about it but he no from the word goat, he saw the fallacy, and his whole life is, is a kind of denial of that fallacy.
4: Yeah, I mean, when my wife and I exchanged our marital vows, it was not about how we were going to share power with one another, no. and then to institute a system of checks and balances, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Although well, it might not
3: have been a bad idea, but... <laughs> I see where the power is in that <laughs>
1: I, I think this is the after panel um, at <laughs> the beginning. Um, well, let's talk about populism. Um, uh, the assumption in the setup definitely seems to be that it's a bad thing, but John O'Sullivan's written differently, haven't you?
3: Yes, I, I, I mean, first of all, of course, the word is used, as the word fascism is used, to mean something I don't like. And, and um, yeah, the, it it covers so many different things at so many different times. That it's very hard to attach a really clear meaning to it. Um, I noticed, for example, that most people thought the last year's elections, in which um, uh, President Macron won as a centrist, that was treated by everybody as a defeat for populism. Well, certainly Marine Le Pen, his opponent, was a populist, and it was a defeat for her. But actually, if you looked at his campaign, he had um, uh, he had uh, launched a party. Um, which denied, which was an attack on what he called, you know, what de Gaulle and he called the regime of the parties. It was a personalist party. It had his initials, en marche Emmanuel Macron. It was, uh, it was based on the idea that left and right no longer mattered. One should be free to pick different ideas from left and right and, um, and get rid of that kind of ideology. This, these are all populist themes, but no one thought he was a populist. because he was was presenting himself as a liberal. Well, in fact, the way populism is used now in public intellectual debate, it is seen to be the antonym of liberalism. You have have liberalism, um, liberal democracy, and you have uh, populism attacking it. Well, how true is that? I think those political scientists, and they include some liberals like the Dutch professor Kasmuda and some French conservatives like Pierre Manon, and in fact, throughout, the, uh, throughout Europe, and to some extent America, you can see a, a critique developing, which I think is a conservative critique, but it goes as follows. Populism is the democratic response to the fact that liberals have re- liberal elites have removed entire questions of importance from the political agenda. They make it impossible to talk about these things. Those those things they've removed include, for instance, uh, mass immigration. They include multiculturalism. They include the transfer of power from parliaments and Congresses that are democratically elected to um, uh, supranational organizations, or to the courts, or to bureaucracies, which are not popularly elected or accountable, but which nonetheless uh, ex- exercise a lot of political power, and indeed, as Muda and others argue, they exercise more and more power, as power is removed from these bodies, uh, to, uh, removed to these bodies. And um, this has happened now for 20-odd years. Uh, the the electorates have finally come round to realising, uh, particularly conservatives among them, but not only conservatives, as the... Uh, uh, as, um, I'm sorry. What's his name? The uh, Benny Sanders demonstrate that, that they're being sold. Uh, they're being sold a bill of goods. Well, they're not being sold it. They're being presented with it and then taxed to pay for it. So that that is the uh, that is the I think the critique, which is a perfectly valid one, and um, the argument therefore is as follows, um, as Pierre Manour, the French writer, says, what politics is now developing into is a contestation between, as he says, populist demagogy versus the fanaticism of the centre. And he regards the fanaticism of the centre in defence of those policies it has passed without democratic consent um, as a more dangerous. the more dangerous of the two. Now, you can argue about that, but certainly it's not simply a question of a lot of primitive people who don't know about anything sort of clamouring to... Dragged down from from their seats of power, um, the elites um, for no good reason. People feel they've been badly governed, and they want to do something about it. And that's a democratic response, rather than the purely populist one.
2: I I, I think that um, a coherent way of looking at populism is not to, you know, not not in this. fake-news way of yeah. seeing uh, Le Pen as populist and, and the centrists as non-populist. Uh, uh, let's remember that populism uh, strides both uh, ideologies so that you have uh, populist like Erdogan, uh, even with religious uh, imagery, uh, and a populist like uh, Maduro, uh, the, the commonality between them, and I, I think all populists, is that first and foremost, to genuflect to, to Russell Kirk, who is genuflecting to T.S. Eliot, is that these they are enemies of the permanent things. So it is a, it, an ideology uh, governed by passions governed by feelings, governed by uh, desires, not subordinated to a telos, to a truth. Uh, and that becomes very dangerous. I give you uh, Harvey Weinstein as the embodiment of, of that on, on the cultural level. But the, uh, the thing that ends up happening is what they want to do in the political realm is accrue more power. Uh, and that leaves, oddly enough, the people out of it. The the contrary movement to that is the subtlety of thinking, the friendships, uh, the the locality, the principle of subsidiarity or sphere sovereignty, if you like, um, that that recognizes the local and the the personal, uh, and the replacement of power and politics with prudence and friendships and relationships uh, and this subtle sense of what Newman calls the illative sense that is um, what I, I like to liken it to street smarts it's when you you know you're walking down a street and maybe this is, you have to be a brooklyn kid to understand i was to say this. everything
1: comes back to brooklyn it comes out, it? back to brooklyn for
2: me. <laughs> you're walking down the street and you see some people that don't look too friendly there, and what do you do? Well, if you retreat, they come after you. If you walk on the other side of the street, they come after you. You have to manage the thing in such a way that uh, you neither threaten, you're neither aggressive nor too passive. And I think this balance, this sent, this is what the virtue of prudence does, it, it helps us to implement in a practical way um, virtue. And, and by the way, virtue. <laughs> You know, all of this is absent from these kinds of discussions. So I I think the fact that you have Bernie Sanders on the one hand, and a lot of conservative uh, populists uh, on the other, all attempting, fighting over the bone, uh, and excluding all of these other virtues and these institutions that are essential uh, for the, the free society and the virtuous society.
4: The the prophet of this in the American context is Christopher Lash, uh, who wrote about this in uh, his books, The Revolt of the Elites and The True and Only Heaven, where he said the leadership class in America is uh, driven by this idea of unlimited progress. Uh, And and so the the fundamental problem of of the leadership class, uh, he believed, was they thought that there were no limits to economic growth, uh, to upward mobility, um, to to human desire, human self-expression, that there are no limits to these things. And he said the thing is that people who are not part of the meritocracy run into limits every day of their lives. Uh, They know that there are limits. And part of their experience of limits is that they're the ones who have to pay the price for the schemes of of the meritocrats who are innovating uh, with our economy and political institutions, and um, you know, creating suffering on the bottom end? You know, in, in populism in America, one of the constant, you know, there there's, there are a bunch of elements that you see constantly in populism. But one of them is frustration with the financial system, specifically yeah. the banks. Right. So what's triggered uh, contemporary populism in part is utter frustration with Wall Street, right, and the fact that the people who um, you know the smartest men in the room, you know the masters of the universe who uh, hatched these schemes uh, in the late nineties and throughout the the 2000s got away with it right um, and then the government ends up doubling down on a lot of the policies uh, that created the financial mess in the first place in the meantime right small time investors to the degree there were any end up uh, you know losing in these sorts of things um, you know. There, there is a sense in which, uh, you know, when, when you're playing sports growing up and, and you lose a game, they say, well, you know, dust yourself off. We'll get them next time. But what happens when people think that the game is completely rigged against them? That's right. Or there is no next time, right? They're never going to get another chance, right? Then the only response they have is to kind of blow up the game, right? Um, and uh, every opportunity they, they get, they're going to stick a finger in the eyes of the people who are running the show. Um, you know. So I, I, I didn't hear real well what Dr. Ryden said in his introduction, but I believe he mentioned something about uh, uh, you know, the racism uh, or, or the racial aspects of, of a lot of the stuff that's going on. Um, and, and one way to read that is that, it's not so, that, that that those expressions of racism are not directed so much toward the people in the other race as they are directed toward the elites right because they know that that's a way to absolutely infuriate the elites is right because that's that's a sacred cow uh, you know it's, it's sort of like hell's angels wearing swastikas it 's not because they were fascists uh, it's because it was a way of absolutely infuriating the people uh, who were running a country that was decidedly working against their interests and that they thought that they had uh, no possibility yet so uh, you, you know you know, part of uh, uh, populism. The, the, one of the good aspects of populism is that um, it's always been attended by this idea of um, a healthy economy is one where you don't have massive concentrations of capital, uh, and where you don't have your leadership class thinking that you can do things perpetually without limits. Uh, but you have a kind of widespread distribution of property. Uh, right? They they believe in uh, you know small business, you know, proprietorship, and these kinds of things. Uh, right, they accept the kind of limits that human beings uh, ordinarily have to deal with in life. Uh, and uh, they'll, they'll recognize that there are a bunch of things in life you just, right, that you're not going to have this constant, unlimited progress. Right? Um, especially if you realize that there are people who are going to be victims of that progress. Um, and there's a certain sympathy for those victims. Yes.
3: I mean, I think that in the European context, what you've just said. might might look at from the standpoint of examining how the euro was instituted, what then happened, why it's a problem today, and why there are reactions against it, like, for example, the election of the Italian government, which is rebelling against that kind of control. Um, For a start, nothing could be further from kind of Russell's view of a decent society than the idea that a group of international uh, government-appointed experts should design um, a, a continent-wide uh, currency arrangement, um, which removes something, in the case of Germany, extraordinarily popular and important in the German mind, namely the fact that the Deutschmark Mark has, was the symbol of German success and recovery after the Second World War. And they were proud of it, which is why they were never given an opportunity to vote against it being abs- 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 subsumed into the Euro. Um, nor were other countries, very few. Now, this was designed by the experts, um, and not just by one or two experts, but by a continent-wide assembly of them. It is the single biggest failure of public policy since the Second World War. That's the description of the Washington Post's economic uh, columnist, uh, Samuelson. He's absolutely right. It's now widely recognized to have caused a truly serious crisis um, it's one which is recurrent I mean they've they, they got over several of them but it's uh, if they haven't solved the problem people can see it's going to be uh, carrying on further down the road in the case of the countries which of the Mediterranean which are the vic- principal victims of it youth unemployment is at levels of 50 percent and it has been that way now for the last eight or nine years the Greeks who are the the worst victim of it. They have seen their um, national income decline, their GDP could decline by a quarter. Um, huge numbers of people have left the country. And yet there seems to be no way that this can be reformed because the elites consider it to be a vital element of a successful building of a European um, uh, future.
2: And, and it's not just the euro, but it's the whole interventionist apparatus that goes with the euro so that you're telling uh, British vegetable salesmen that they can't uh, sell apples in
3: pounds uh, rather than in metrics. That, that is metrics. True. It so happens that the euro is, in a sense, the aspect of that kind of politics which is, is having the most devastating consequences mm-hmm. for ordinary people. And um, now, if ordinary, if, in a political system in which the, the ordinary people, in, um, the, the decent society, if the ordinary people actually do have an influence because they're the people who suffer from these things, this wouldn't continue. But it continues because the politics have been. Far further and further removed from the people who go into the voting booth, mm-hmm. and that's what we have to, in a sense, be concerned about. And in a sense, I'm not, I'm not seeing in a peer of praise of democracy, but I am saying that in a good society, you wouldn't have uh, elites being able to ride away, uh, pursuing hobby horses, without their being restrained by the by the. Well, by the reactions of their fellow citizens.
2: You, you said, the, Jeff, that, that um, Lash was the prophet of populism, but here's something from Kirk in his essay, The Drug of Ideology. Quote, I am saying, <laughs> listen to this and then look around. I am saying that there exists real danger of our, a real danger of our drifting mindlessly into the mass age, unaware that order and justice and freedom are fragile. And that day, as much as in 1776 and 1787, we need to discuss questions concerning the vitality of the good civil social order. So th- there's another prophecy of exactly what we're seeing, but now on stilts because of the technological
4: revolution that goes with it, which is part of the fuel of this populism. Yeah, you know, I mean, Lash argued this is in the early 1990s, right? That that American populism. Populism would would split off into a kind of socialist angle on the one hand and a sort of fascist angle on the other hand, right? Um, you know, I'm not saying Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, but right. I mean, there, there's there's a certain argument you can make. You know, Kirk talked all the time about um, the formation of a, what he called a tolerable social order uh, as a phrase a phrase he liked to use, and he has different descriptions for it. But one description he has of it is. Um, that you want a social order where you're really gifted and really talented people um, have the opportunity to develop and express their gifts, and then everybody else will have protections hmm. against those expressions, hmm. Hmm. right? Because those those gifts, right? They'll they'll kind of spin out of control. They'll become ambitious and so forth. Um, and, and you know, Kirk uh, would often argue that uh, you know a, a tolerable social order is one where people recognize their relationships of mutual dependency. I mean, whatever else friendship is, it's a recogni- recognition of mutual dependency. The problem in our society today is that the people, uh, the elite classes, uh, you know, the, the meritocracy, creates contempt. Uh, you know, and, and it's especially so if they have escaped that, right? Yes. If they come from the lower classes, um, and then they go off to the Ivy League um, universities, uh, and they have contempt. They don't see, there's no noblesse oblige, they don't feel obligated to the people underneath them. Uh, they're contemptuous of the people underneath them, and the people beneath them feel that contempt. So that, right, two of the great examples of this in the last uh, couple of years were, uh, you know, Mitt Romney talking about the 47%, you know, the takers, um, and then Hillary Clinton talking about the deplorables. Right? Uh, this is not a relationship of mutual dependency. These are the people who are building the, their houses and and, and and manufacturing their goods you know and, and building the chairs that they sit on. right These are not people you 're contemptuous of. That's These are human beings who are doing fundamentally good jobs, important jobs um, and when you have your elites constantly communicating to them, you know one of the phrases that Obama liked to use was well that 's not who we are well d- d- Think about how that sounds to somebody who doesn't agree with him,
3: <laughs> right? They say, well, so I'm excluded, right? well, I'm not that, part of this. That, and that's a very interesting point, because, of course, one of the arguments against um, populists is that when they talk about the people, they don't really mean the people. They mean a particular set of citizens who they like or approve of or support they have. And that is exactly what that statement says. When you say, that's not who we are, uh, if, if, the, if the opinion polls, for example, suggest that people do believe those things, um, that they're being criticised, then you're really writing them off, and and, th- and that's something which uh, is that argument is normally heard from the mouths of of, of avowedly anti-populist politicians. So uh, populism is in a sense a lot of things, but one of it is is a temptation, and and um, it's one that we should try to resist, obviously, but uh, at the same time. Sometimes the evidence for the argument is quite strong.
4: Well, I mean, the, the you know, what what are the biggest problems uh, that you end up facing? So you were talking about the euro, and I think um, you know one of the things that drives uh, a lot of this stuff is when you have right bad finance mm-hmm. going on. I mean, it was interesting to me that never during the last presidential campaign did either candidate talk about the national debt. Right? I mean, we have twenty-one trillion dollars of debt. This uh, of, of federal debt we have $70 trillion of consumer corporate uh, and government debt in this country the fiscal gap in this country is $200 trillion uh, which on a per capita basis is worse than Greece mm. and nobody's talking about it why because it's they don't want to admit that there are limits Right? there are limits to what they can spend for example well, they intend to add to the debt well that's what <laughs> they will do yeah
3: well they, they actually don't think, in a curious way they're not serious are they I mean, politicians who, in a sense, come in and they, they're presented with this extraordinary indebtedness, which uh, they are assuming will never have to be paid. And I don't mean that in a simple way. I mean, they, they're assuming that they can just be added to indefinitely, and the bill will, will never be presented, at least in their lifetime. And, of course... Um, that may not be the case, and indeed the, the impact of the, the 2008 financial crash on a lot of people the decline in living standards. The Italians have not have seen their living standards decline in the last 20 years, hence the eruption in uh, Italian politics of, of populism there. And, um, and 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 yet, the inability of people to really uh, sit down and work out we've got to live a slightly different kind of life in order to prevent this catastrophe. There doesn't the willingness among the leaders of the society doesn't seem to be there. You and know
1: that's very that, that's almost the antithesis of the conservatism in so many ways. That the idea of stewardship, right? Yeah. Bill Buckley always talked about the patrimony, and I always I always think Barack Obama's campaign slogan, we are the ones we have been waiting for, was the perfect encapsulation of sort of everything that's wrong, the mentality that's wrong. It's a bipartisan problem, too. As, yeah. as, as you're saying, everyone contributes to it.
4: Yeah, and, and just quickly, I mean, <laughs> that, that was for Kirk one of the essential things he took from Edmund Burke, right, that uh, society was an eternal contract among the generations, mm-hmm. right, and that uh, people who do not respect their ancestors will make no provision for their, for their progeny.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really is a... Pro- I mean, people yeah, aren't even yeah. thinking about what this is going to mean yeah, for the that, next generation. That is right. But let me just say that um, it, Margaret Thatcher, obviously I'm an admirer of hers, and I work for her, but well, she's an example of somebody who was um, able to take brave, bold, and unpopular measures, and to, to, to prove that doing that, and, and actually establishing a kind of civilized order in lots of areas of economic life from which it had been absent, was not unpopular. Yes, there were difficulties in doing it. Some of the actions created conflict. Um, but it, in the end, it, became the, it, it got the support of the population, because they could see that this was, going to re- um, this was averting much more serious crises down the road. And I would say her, one of her greatest achievements was to be able to, uh, to go to the country and get the response from the people, we accept this, Things have gone, have been going bad, very badly. We need to do something about it. It can't carry on like this. And and that that was a conservative response, uh, of a responsible response from the populace when they've been presented with an honest analysis by her. And and that is the one. The fact that she was re-elected three times tells you that that um, this is not impossible. We you know our politicians. Could do the right thing, and they could assemble support from us if they were prepared to take the risks.
1: What do we think uh, Russell Kirk would think about Donald Trump? I hate playing that game. People always ask me what Bill Buckley yeah. say about Donald Trump, and we don't know. They're not here. I um, wish we could give them a call and get their advice, but, but. Um, and And I particularly am thinking about this in terms of you know we just had our the midterm elections, obviously, and, and we're halfway through and and he's running again, and what does this mean for conservatism where What should conservatives be thinking about, including politicians who think themselves conservative? Father
2: Well. You know, I'm always reluctant to put words, you know... uh, But
1: but but just looking at his writing... I can't imagine... uh, Well,
2: I think what would concern Russell greatly is what this means for the body of conservative thought and movement uh, and all of the believers in Russell Kirk. (laughs) You know, what... what, I mean, aside from the man, Trump... um, what does this mean for the the trajectory of these ideas? Uh, and it 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 is it is dangerous uh, when people, uh, you know, what what part of the what part of it is Trump doing it, and what part of it is that he is a result of what what's gone on in the culture prior to it? You know, it's. Um, the, the, the fact that I can't imagine many young people today, the millennials, and picking up the roots of American order and, A, having the stamina to read it, or, more importantly, feeling the excitement of just going through the table of contents. You know, this might be a, a challenge for, for some of you. Just pick up, if you haven't read the book, pick it up and go through the table of contents and ask yourself, does this excite me? I, I was doing that today as I was I was doing that with deco- redeeming
1: the time earlier. Okay. Yeah, and, and it's exciting. And I said, exactly. I, I have to
2: go back to this because I, I saw it from a different light now that I'm an older man than when I was a younger man. And uh, and what what alarms me is what the tweeting generation means. You know what what this that everything is captured in 140... You know, the way I I feel like I have
1: to go to confession to you later (laughs) because I tweet a lot.
2: (laughs) We've gone in, is it one or two generations, from the erudition of Firing Line to the food fights of Sean Hannity. Uh, And this is appalling, and it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. So what we need to do, I, I hope you're going to ask at some point, what do we do about this? <laughs> we need to go back to read Kirk. We, we need to... And, and form circles of people reading and discussing Buckley. And, and watch the old firing lines. Look at what it looks like to really disagree with someone. Mm-hmm. To really have a, a, a profound disagreement where you let the person finish what they're saying and then you respond to what they said not who they are not what they look like not what somebody told you uh, that that whole tradition of engagement of respect is you know is being just ripped away from
3: the culture and I don't know that that's so easy to put back i'm sure that's right um, but um Think about Russell for a second. I said before he was a literary intellectual, but he was a great deal more, of course. Um, He travelled a lot. He'd been a teacher. He'd been in the army. And um, if you have been in the army, you've heard people use profane language. Um, And uh, maybe in those days, not in front of women, but certainly use it. So he wouldn't have been, in a sense, shocked by the vulgarities and uh, the way in which and, and, and the lack of respect that in a sense you've summed up there. Um, uh, but he wouldn't have li- which we, we, we get, get from Donald Trump occasionally, um, but, so he wouldn't have liked that. Yeah. He, would have, he would have found it, um, uh, this is not the way people should Again, behave. Again, you know, I'm, I'm Paulie Walnuts' brother. Yeah. I, I'm not, you <laughs> know, the F
2: word doesn't <laughs> scare me. That's story, actually. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not that he
3: says it it's that, it's that he says it in public and in front of women. Exactly. It's, it's, know, it's it. a lack of, uh, it's a lack of this, the sense of what is appropriate, right. uh, among other things. Um, so he wouldn't have liked that, I don't think. But on the other hand, I think he would have recognized that there is in the present, and this is something I've come late to, really, is a kind of odd, brilliant instinct of a political kind, that unsettles the other side, that exploits their weakness, that tempts them into extravagant policies on their side, which he then profits from attacking. So you're dealing with an extraordinarily uh, complex and odd personality with the President. And I'm not a psychologist, and certainly not a long-distance psychologist or psychiatrist, so I I, I wouldn't go into that. But I think there are elements in uh, the President's politics which he shares um, with uh, with Russell, yes. um, which are uh, I would say the one that strikes me most is uh, Russell was thought two things about foreign policy. He felt, I mean, a hundred things, but the two I'm going to focus on are first of all, that you shouldn't go around trying to, uh, to look for more and more dragons abroad to destroy. That wasn't the purpose of foreign policy. Right. It wasn't the purpose of foreign policy to wage crusades. And therefore, you shouldn't get involved in wars, um, which weren't either ones you were forced to fight or, or ones that were mixed, m- m- prudence made you fight. On the other hand, once you were in a war, you had to win it. I mean, he, he, he didn't believe in, in a sense, <clears throat> picking fights and then losing them. And, uh, and those two elements are present in Trump, as you can see from the way um, he's somewhat changed his no, And and the court
2: appointments as well. I'm sure Russell will be thrilled with the the court appointments. But, I mean, uh, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. (laughs) Trump is, uh, and uh, again, I don't know that he is the cause or the result, but he's certainly aiding, but he's Mr. Magoo. He's walking (laughs) along and he's about to step off and something picks him up and and puts him safely on the next level. Yeah, it's just right. amazing to watch the acrobatics of this administration.
1: Well, I think it is an mm-hmm. important point. I often say he didn't start the fire. I mean, he right, is a product right. of a lot of other things. But then, for example, in, in the Kavanaugh um, saga, there was a point where the Democrats could have won, and yes. they overplayed their hands. They sure did. Yeah, And sure um, did. it is sort and, of and he
2: did the same thing. Right. You know, if he had just Totally did, and and the stickituitiveness of it, the 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 solidarity that he had with Kavanaugh, he, he right. was unfrightened by right. that. Right. That was great. Right. Leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Don't get the last dig in. You know, it's just,
4: and, and that's exactly what the Democrats did. So it's uh, a plague on both their houses. Yeah, but what created Donald Trump? Uh, you know, he wasn't created by the party apparatus. So he's not a traditional right. politician in that sense. Uh, he was created by um, a combination of uh, leveraging mon- other people's money by uh, the a cult of celebrity uh, and by Hollywood. Right? I mean, the, his TV show The Apprentice and, and, and so forth. Uh, you know, all things which have been responsible in varying degrees for the destruction of our culture. Uh, so he's a symptom of an attenuated culture, uh, and in a certain sense, if you spend uh, a generation or two coarsening the culture and creating cults of celebrity and so forth, you would kind of expect to end up with someone like Donald Trump as your president. I mean, in that sense, it's, it's not that surprising. Um, and, and, and I, I think um, my fellow panelists are right that the, 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 the task is not to, um, uh, you know, engage in all these political machinations. You know, what conservatism used to stand for was uh, the idea that power corrupts. I know you like this, right? Power corrupts. It's Lord Acton. And Actually, absolute power corrupts, tends to corrupt absolutely. Hey. <laughs> and and uh, Correctly, Thatcher, on that one. <laughs> unenviable task. <laughs> no, I would not want to do that. Um, and, and so there was always the suspicion of power, and that one of the ways you handled power was by uh, uh, distributing it as much as you possibly could, uh, you know, the principles of federalism and so forth, um, and that you had a certain suspicion about people who were too ambitious. Uh, what happened to conservatism in uh, the 70s, 80s, and 90s is it became obsessed with controlling power, Uh, Rather than being suspicious of power, it thought, no, we're going to grab the levers of power and we're going to use it to advance a particular agenda. Um, And and I I think that is something that would have disturbed uh, Dr. Kirk, Uh, you know, this idea that a conservative political movement would evolve, um, that would become interested in exercising power, um, especially at the federal level, uh, as much as it possibly could. Uh, His thinking uh, was always, uh, you you mentioned redeeming the time, right? It's about the culture. I mean, the politics is always downstream from the culture. Um, uh, A a, a writer um, that uh, Dr. Uh, Kirk liked to to cite, and we went to Catholic University, we studied with David Walsh, so we know Eric Vogelin. Uh, Vogelin wrote once that no one is obligated to participate in the disorder of their age. Right. And if you know that the culture is sick and you know the economy is sick and so you're not obligated to participate in that, right? You can turn off your Twitter accounts and you can log off of Facebook and you can turn off your TVs. Right. You're not obligated. You know, if the politics gets ugly and heated, you don't have to be part of that. Right? I mean you can you can stage your rebellion by being a good neighbor, mm-hmm. uh, and by participating in you know, I mean the, Tocqueville says this in the 1830s, or the strength of American life is associative. It's not political. It's people getting together in civil society and working on mutual projects and engaging in acts of mutual dependency with each other.
1: And I, I do have to say one little word for, for places like Twitter. Um, I, do, I do think, and I, I think this would be something Kirk would, would appreciate, I think you have to sanctify those places. Sometimes you have to go in there with good things, and so so people will be going on and on about something on a given day, and I'll just you know quote a psalm and a beautiful scene that I, you know, and and it, it and the reason I do it is people come up to me and they say things like, you know, I, I was having a very stressful day, and I remembered to pray that day, you know, and and I, it is important to engage um, even, even in those places. So, on the issue of virtue, Russell Kirk wrote, wrote, um, at, uh, wrote a famous essay, Can Virtue Be Taught? And, and on, going back to, uh, your, 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 uh, question, Father Sirico, um, um, so what do we do about it? What do we do about all of this? Um, can we teach people virtue? How, how do we do that? Is it just by being good friends and neighbors? Is there a political action in that? Um, uh, what is the role in public life um, for for virtue? And um, what do we do when we're looking around and all all the people we're paying the most attention to seem to lack it?
2: Well, I I think we have to tell more compelling stories. Uh, I I think we need to tell the story of Western civilization in a more compelling way. We need to remind people. The, the, The metaphor that I have used is um, I lived at a, in a house uh, it was three stories high, and right next door, uh, right next to it was this huge tree that went up uh, above the house. And I was sitting on the porch one day looking at this tree, and it was an odd phenomenon because part of the tree was blooming and part of the tree was dead and i couldn't figure that out being from brooklyn you know we we had a tree in brooklyn once right. <laughs> but they got it it's gone um, and so I, I, we called the tree doctor who knew there was such a thing did you know there thing
1: they have tree doctors
2: in michigan anyway this guy came and
1: well when you export your tree from michigan and the one tree you don't really need a doctor but well he fine. picked
2: at the bark and he went down Uh, and knelt down and, and picked up some of the dead leaves and looked at the roots and stuff and he came on the board he said the tree is dead I said how can it be dead it's blossoming he said half of it's blossoming he said it's an illusion there's the sap is going through the tree but it's not being produced anymore it's just living off of the legacy of the past so you have to cut this down because in a Michigan winter it's going to come down on the house and I often think of our society in that way that a lot of people just assume this is the way it's always been. Uh, when, when Acton said uh, that liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization, he's encapsulating there this whole process that had to do with the roots, that, that had an anthropology at the base of it, that saw man as both corporeal and transcendent, the creator of a god who gave to him a purpose in his life, and that the sanctity of the individual bred systems and institutions that protected the right of that person to his property, to his family, the importance of truth-telling and bearing true witness, and the whole Judeo-Christian thing that, again, as you say, sacramentalized the material world, that saw the structures in the material world as the occasion for redemption, the occasion where God breaks out of his creation, not that he invades it, but that the creation itself and that this order is worth preserving and passing on. And this whole notion of what then becomes Western civilization, the most magnificent experiment in human liberty uh, the world has ever seen, producing this incredible prosperity and liberty. Uh, I think we need to tell those stories again. Uh, we need to, if, if they can't read Roots of, uh, of American Order, what we need to do is produce uh, the, the mm. 140 uh,
0: <laughs> uh, pellets and right. throw it at them,
2: or little YouTube videos that, that tell the story in a, in a parabolic way. But we have to reclaim it. The, the, the source the roots are the same; they just need to be revivified. They need to be nurtured again and represented once more. And you know, I make this Hayekian point and stop, or maybe it's a Misesian point: is that it's all going to come down? The question is: is it going to come down in an orderly fashion, or can we manage this and represent it in time to save the
3: tree? Well, of course, the, the conservative principle is that all bad things come to an end. <laughs> but on the other hand, I don't <laughs> think we can look forward to that exactly. And it seems to me that uh, there are certainly really important questions which uh, uh, our fellow um, uh, conversationalists have put on the table here, because they're describing a society which has two important aspects. On the one hand, you have uh, the mass of the population which is entertaining itself to death. Uh, and and um, we, we think that a lot of that uh, entertainment, in, in the broadest sense, is, is a culturally um, coarse and, and brutalist and uh, teaches us the wrong lessons. It, just as a side thing, how many people here have, to- have been to a Trump rally? Um, I mean, wasn't it the most extraordinarily entertaining experience? Because I was at a speech he gave recently, and it was like a fantastic late night comedian show. By the way, it was full of important information, and he had a grasp and a mastery of the, of the policies and so on, so it was serious too. But it was, it was an extraordinary kind of entertaining um, uh, episode, and, and that's, I think, one of the reasons for his success. So you've got the, you, you've got, he's a product of that society, of our society. Now, the other thing is, you've got, and we discussed this backstage, uh, Jeff you've got um, a, 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 a managerial elite which runs everything, and um, which is quite happy for us to be sitting in the stalls uh, laughing at late-night television and so on. And, and, and I'm struggling now to think how we're going to do something about that unless we do engage in this struggle for power called politics. Um, I don't think we can just step back um, because and we could, of course, we could take a holiday from history, so to speak, and, and we could be um, like the, uh, some of the early Christian um, uh, anchorites and so on uh, in the desert on, and uh, away from things. But, but somehow or other, I don't think that the, the Americans, and I don't think Brits, they, they, can't, they can't really do that. They can't simply say... Um, you know, this is a dirty business, we don't want anything to do with it, and all, all the incentives are the wrong ones. We may know that, but we still feel obliged to roll up our sleeves and do something about it. This is a Tocquevillian society. And and um, if we're going to sort of restore Tocquevillian values, we, we have to battle the values of um, in remote elite managerialists who go to the same colleges, marry each other, and then begin to lead and think of themselves as a separate caste. And I don't see how we do that unless we actually engage in politics. And Annette will can correct me if I'm wrong, but Russell was active in politics. He, he was the chairman of committees for this and that in presidential campaigns. So he did, he did feel that was necessary. Of course, I think what I'm saying means that there are things we won't do, and shouldn't do, but nonetheless, we can't avoid, uh, it seems to me, the ability to engage in, in the struggle for power, uh, but we just have to keep that struggle within very carefully, careful limits, and recognize our own corruption, which may mean that we sometimes don't.
1: And, and I also think, and keep ourselves in check, I, often people get so into the debate about abortion, or the, whatever it is, and don't know the solution down their block, the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I'm mm. always plugging the Sisters of Life, who are New York-based and, and around the country, um, because that's part of the solution. People don't believe there are people who actually do the work of uh, works of mercy and the Beatitudes and all. Now, I, I believe that Jeff now Nelson... Oh, okay, I, I, okay. If,
4: if, if I can make a, a comment about that, I, I, I don't want to again say that. I, I, I think that's right. Um, Uh, You know, Freud in in Civilization and its Discontents says, you know, I mean, this old order is ending, and there's a new order. Um, uh, He he said, all we can hope to do is mitigate the violence of its eruption. (laughs) Right? And that kind (laughs) of goes to the story that you told. I mean, uh, you know, if something can't go on forever, it won't. Uh, And we know that the politics, the the, 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 the the managerial administrative state that we have in place right now can't keep going on, in part because it's siphoning too much wealth, uh, actual wealth, out of the um, economy. And, you know, when that comes to an end, there has to be people who know how to do things. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, the last time we had a Secretary of Labor who had ever actually labored,
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> you know, I mean, we haven't had a non-Ivy League Secretary of Labor since the Clinton administration, uh, and there's something comical about Secretaries of Labor uh, who have never stepped foot on a factory floor. You know, Charles Murray in, in Coming Apart. You know, he has this test that he does for you know this division of Americans into different classes, and you know, among the questions that he asks are, <laughs> Have your Have your muscles ever ached at the end of the day? Yeah. Have you ever stepped foot on a factory floor? Uh, you know, things yeah. like this, and, and, and you know, so what happens if you have a class of people who have never stepped foot on a, on a factory floor, or whose muscles have never ached at the end of the day, who have never done a hard day's labor yeah. um, in their life, and so again, they're contemptuous of it. Well, these are tasks that cannot be avoided. Food needs to be grown. Things need to be built. Things need to be repaired. Uh, garbage has to be collected, right? Um, I mean, these are absolutely essential tasks that have to be done. They can't be devalued. Uh, and, and part of that is uh, learning how to, you know, Matthew Crawford has this book called The World Outside Your Head. Right? I mean, learning how to engage the world outside your head uh, and and, and, that, and forming yourself accordingly. Um, and, and, and so I think part of it... You know, not to, to, to gainsay say the, the politics, because I think you want to minimize the violence of its eruption. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely, you don't want the tree to fall on the house. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I think it's essential that you start developing uh, and cultivating um, sets of skills that are absolutely essential to human well-being. Um, that among these are the ability uh, to know how food is grown uh, and where it comes from, Uh, knowing how to to build things, knowing how to fix things, Um, knowing how to engage in relationships. You know, the the latest issue of The Atlantic, the cover story in the latest issue of The Atlantic, one of my students referred me to it. Um, These are people who don't know. You've got a whole generation of people who don't know how to engage in relationships at all, right? I mean, that's a fundamental human need. It's yeah. a fundamental human good. So, uh, you know, part of uh, part of the politics, it seems to me, is understanding the necessity of these tasks and learning how to do these things and learning how to engage in these tasks.
1: I, um, in preparation for coming here, I, I was Googling, doing some Googling, and I found an Acton Institute... Dinner introduction that Russell Kirk gave of Bill Buckley. That was the
2: first Acton Institute annual dinner it in 1990, 91. Maybe. Yeah. And uh, we invited Russell to introduce. Uh, Bill Buckley, uh, at that dinner.
1: And, and his introduction, first of all, could have been a speech in it itself. It was right. so entertaining. But what was so striking to me, it was there was the glim- glimmer in his eye, and you ta- talked about maybe a mischievousness. There was a, the clever and, and the two of them engaging, where yes. it's just, it's nothing like you see these days.
2: No. It and was friendship.
1: It was friendship, and it was, it was, it was um, you know, we talk about identity, politics, and, and all these things, but it was a real sense of identity and, and a gratitude for, for the gift of life and these talents, and neither one of them thought that this was their own genius that, that, that had gotten to them to this point. How do we recapture that? And do you see anyone, too, on the scene today... Who, who makes you think, oh, you know, he has some of that. Or I have some hope that's not dead. I well, have hope conservatism isn't dead.
3: But I don't think there's any lack. I mean, uh, 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 people still have friendships. There are still such things as dining clubs where people get together once a month, whatever, to uh, basically to exchange, uh, uh, but to have conversations with friends over meals. I mean, and... Um, so uh, uh, and many
1: people have these b- book clubs, or there are absolutely, and
3: uh, uh, yeah, that's versions. right. There are all kinds of associations which still exist. The problem is that politics um, always wants to control them. Um, There's quite a funny thing. You know, some years ago, there was a big campaign to get gentlemen's clubs in New York to accept women. And, um, and that was sort of fine <coughs> for those who wanted, you know. That, I personally never really objected to gentlemen-only clubs or, wi- or women-only clubs, but, um, because I thought that they were simply the occasions when people could get away from the opposite sex. But, um, <laughs> but, the, fact is, but, but the, the campaign was based on the argument That if women were not in these clubs, they wouldn't get the kind of social advantages that would enable them to advance themselves in their career. Which led one man to say, "Look, if anybody tried to join this club on the basis that he wanted to advance his social career by doing his business career by doing so, he would be immediately thrown out of the uh, the front door." So, but politics wants always to impose its own concepts of justice and value. Uh, on, on the, all of the multifarious activities of our lives. And that's the, one of the ways we can, we can be true to, to Ross, it seems to me, is just to resist that, to try to say, no, we don't want everything to be organised and controlled by the courts. We want things to be... we want to have a free and easy thing. And, we cert- and, and, and what's happening with American life at the moment is there are too many... and British life is worse... Uh, there are too many people trying to find that you are behaving in a way that is contrary to ultimate justice, and and therefore you must be shunned. And this shunning and shaming is one of the worst things, and it's also one of the ways in which we're ceasing to be free.
2: Um, In addition to my intellectual work with the Acton Institute, I'm a pastor of a parish. I've been in pastoral work full-time the entire time uh, I've been in Michigan. In my parish now, I've been uh, there seven years. Uh, what I see forming there is a culture around the school, within the parish, uh, talking about all this. Uh, the, the guys just decided that they wanted to have a, um, a hunter's night. Now, this is Michigan, but this is very unusual. And th- there's this whole... I- I've forgotten the name of it. They came up with a very witty name, but it's all this wild... You know, bushmeat that we're going to be eating, and they're raffling off guns, and this is a whole, a whole, um, don't let the bishops' conference know about it. Well, they're busy with other <laughs> things. Yeah, they they, they have, other things have other things to do But it, it's really wonderful to see, and it's great to see how the women in the parish are very supportive of that. And th- these kind of little platoons, uh, this is what I'm describing. Uh, let's not reduce the whole thing to, you know, the same, this kind of politically correct thing. We can form, and the Church, I think, uh, still has a vital role that is playing in the United States. Less, I know less so in England. And it seems to me that the more uh, traditional it is, the more it attracts. We, in, in my particular parish, and I know the dynamics are different within the Reformed tradition, but the, we are attracting millennials, young people. Um, uh, uh, what do you call them, hipsters, and stuff? And they come to the Latin Mass. Somebody asked me. We, we have this old traditional Latin Mass. The whole Mass is in Latin with with the Gregorian chant. In, fa- in fact, our our guy who does the the music is a graduate of, of Hope and. Um, all the smells and bells, and you have these millennials and, and, and people with big families and all this, people say, oh, they must have, you must have all the old people come to Mass. I said, no, this is our youth Mass. Uh, we, the, the median age, of course, is because you have you know, some family with six, eight, ten kids, drops the, the number down, but it's, it's really a vital thing, and, and they are forming their own you know, Bible studies and, and, and non-religious things. They're just going out and taking hikes. I, I see on Facebook all the time camping and things like that. So I think we can still depend on these little platoons, these mm-hmm. associations. It does frighten me that the state wants to regulate everything. I mean, I think b- b- the boys, um, Boy Scouts is, a, mm-hmm. is an example of what we need not do. And now the Girl Scouts you know they're destroying each other Mm -hmm. yes that's
4: right but
1: there is so much hope in those little platoons. it's the Tocquevillian point that you made and um and I, I'm sorry, we could continue all night, but yep. we need to wrap this up. And I, I knew you would be the team player as the, the, the man on campus. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Russell would
2: easy. serve sherry and um, uh, cigars <laughs> right about now.
1: Well, well perhaps that's probably outside a law against that's the it after party. Oh, I'm sorry.
2: We're in the reform. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're not at Calvin College. Well,
1: thank, thank you all for, for being Got here right. tonight. <laughs> and And would you please join me in thanking our our panelists here tonight for this conversation? And, and also a particular word of thanks to um, to the college, to the politics department, um, and to to Annette Kirk for continuing the legacy of her husband and and her legacy as much as his.